0: Chapter 13 of Marcia Schuyler by Grace Livingston Hill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 13 Life began to take on a more familiar and interesting aspect to Marcia after that. She had her daily round of pleasant household duties, and she enjoyed them. There were many other gatherings in honor of the bride and groom, tea-drinkings, and evening calls, and a few called in to a neighbor's house to meet them. It was very pleasant to Marcia as she became better acquainted with the people and grew to like some of them, only there was the constant drawback of feeling that it was all a pain and weariness to David. But Marcia was young, and it was only natural that she should enjoy her sudden promotion to the privileges of a matron and the marked attention that was paid her. It was a mercy that her head was not turned, living as she did to herself and with no one in whom she could confide, for David had shrunk within himself to such an extent that she did not like to trouble him with anything. It was only two days after the evening at the old Spafford house that David came home to tea with ashen face, haggard eyes, and white lips. He scarcely tasted his supper, and said he would go and lie down, that his head ached. Marcia heard him sigh deeply as he went upstairs. It was that afternoon that the post had brought him Kate's letter. Sadly, Marcia put away the tea-things, for she could not eat anything either, though it was an unusually inviting meal she had prepared. Slowly she went up to her room and sat looking out into the quiet, darkening summer night, wondering what additional sorrow had come to David. David's face looked like death the next morning when he came down, He drank a cup of coffee feverishly, then took his hat as if he would go to the office, but paused at the door and came back, saying he would not go if Marcia would not mind taking a message for him. His head felt badly. She need only tell the man to go on with things as they had planned, and say he was detained. Marcia was ready at once to do his bidding, with quiet sympathy in her manner, She delivered her message with the frank, straightforward look of a schoolgirl, mingled with a touch of matronly dignity she was trying to assume, which added to her charm, and she smiled her open smile of comradeship, such as she would have dispensed about the old red schoolhouse at home, upon boys and girls alike, leaving the clerk and typesetters in a most subjected state, and ready to do anything in the service of their master's wife it was to be feared that they almost envied david they watched her as she moved gracefully down the street and their eyes had a reverent look as they turned away from the window to their work as though they had been looking upon something sacred harry temple watched her come out of the office she impressed him again as something fresh and different from the common run of matrons in the village he lazily stepped from the store where he had been lounging "'and walked down the street to intercept her as she crossed and turned the corner. "'Good morning, Mrs. Bafford,' he said, with a courtly grace that was certainly captivating. "'Are you going to your home? Then our ways lie together. May I walk beside you?' Marcia smiled and tried to seem gracious, though she would rather have been alone just then, "'for she wanted to enjoy the day and not be bothered with talking.' Harry Temple mentioned having a letter from a friend in Boston, who had lately heard a great chorus rendered. He could not be quite sure of the name of the composer, because he had read the letter hurriedly, and his friend was a blind writer, but that made no difference to Harry. He could fill in facts enough about the grandeur of the music from his own imagination to make up for the lack of a little matter like the name of a composer. He was keen enough to see that Marcia was more interested in music than in anything he said. Therefore he racked his brains for all the music talk he had ever heard, and made up what he did not know, which was not hard to do, for Marcia was very ignorant on the subject. At the door they paused. Marcia was eager to get in. She began to wonder how David felt, and she longed to do something for him. Harry Temple looked at her admiringly, noted the dainty set of chin, the clear curve of cheek, the lovely sweep of eyelashes, and resolved to get better acquainted with this woman, so young and so lovely. "'I have not forgotten my promise to play for you,' he said lightly, watching to see if the flush of rose would steal into her cheek, and that deep light into her expressive eyes.' "'How about this afternoon? Shall you be at home and disengaged?' But Welcome did not flash into Marcia's face as he had hoped. Instead, a troubled look came into her eyes. "'I am afraid it will not be possible this afternoon,' said Marcia, the trouble in her eyes creeping into her voice. "'That is, I expect to be at home, but I am not sure of being disengaged.' "'Ah, I see.' "'He raised his eyebrows archly, looking her meanwhile straight in the eyes. "'Someone else more fortunate than I. Someone else coming?' "'Although Marcia did not in the least understand his insinuation, "'the colour flowed into her cheeks in a hurry now, "'for she instinctively felt that there was something unpleasant in his tone, "'something below her standard of morals or culture she did not quite know what.' "'but she felt she must protect herself at any cost. "'She drew up a little mantle of dignity. "'Oh, no,' she said quickly, "'I am not expecting any one at all, "'but Mr. Spafford had a severe headache this morning, "'and I am not sure but the sound of the piano would make it worse. "'I think it would be better for you to come another time, "'although he may be better by that time.' "'Oh, I see, your husband's at home.' said the young man with relief. His manner implied that he had a perfect understanding of something that Marcia did not mean nor comprehend. "'I understand perfectly,' he said, with another meaning smile, as though he and she had a secret together. "'I'll come some other time,' and he took himself very quickly away, much to Marcia's relief.' but the trouble did not go out of her eyes as she saw him turn the corner. Instead, she went in and stood at the dining-room window a long time, looking out on the Heath's hollyhocks beaming in the sun behind the picket fence, and wondered what he could have meant, and why he smiled in that hateful way. She decided she did not like him, and she hoped he would never come. She did not think she would care to hear him play. There was something about him that reminded her of Captain Leavenworth, and now that she saw it in him, she would dislike to have him about. With a sigh she turned to the getting of a dinner which she feared would not be eaten. Nevertheless she put more dainty thought in it than usual, and when it was done and steaming upon the table, she went gently up and tapped on David's door. A voice hoarse with emotion and weariness answered, Marcia scarcely heard the first time. "'Dinner is ready. Isn't your head any better, David?' There was caressing in his name. It wrung David's heart. Oh, if it were but Kate, his Kate, his little bride that were calling him, how his heart would leap with joy, how his headache would disappear, and he would be with her in an instant. For Kate's letter had had its desired effect— all her wrongdoings, her crowning outrage of his noble intentions, had been forgotten in the one little plaintive appeal she had managed to breathe in a minor wail throughout that treacherous letter, treacherous alike to her husband and to her lover. Just as Kate had always been able to do with every one about her, she had blinded him to her faults, and managed to put herself in the light of an abused, troubled maiden, who was in a predicament through no fault of her own, and sat in sorrow and a baby innocence that was bewilderingly sweet. There had been times when David's anger had been hot enough to waft away this filmy mist of fancies that Kate had woven about herself, and let him see the true Kate as she really was. At such times David would confess that she must be wholly heartless that, bright as she was, it was impossible for her to have been so easily persuaded into running away with a man she did not love. He had never found it so easy to persuade her against her will. Did she love him? Had she truly loved him, and was she suffering now? His very soul writhed in agony to think of his bride, the wife of another, against her will. If he might but go and rescue her! if he might but kill that other man. Then his soul would be confronted with the thought of murder. Never before had he felt hate, such hate, for a human being. Then again his heart would soften toward him, as he felt how the other must have loved her, Kate, his little wild rose. And there was a fellow-feeling between them too, for had she not let him see that she did not half care aright for that other one, then his mind would stop in a whirl of mingled feeling and he would pause and pray for steadiness to think and know what was right around and around through this maze of arguing he had gone through the long hours of the morning always coming sharp against the thought that there was nothing he could possibly do in the matter but bear it and that kate after all the kate he loved with his whole soul had done it and must therefore be to blame then he would read her letter over, burning every word of it upon his brain, until the piteous minor appeal would torture him once more, and he would begin again to try to get hold of some thread of thought that would unravel the snarl and bring peace. Like a sound from another world came Marcia's sweet voice, its very sweetness reminding him of that other lost voice, whose tantalizing music floated about his imagination like a string of phantom silver bells, that all but sounded, and then vanished into silence. And while all this was going on, the spiritual torture, his living, suffering, physical self, was able to summon its thoughts, to answer gently that he did not want any dinner, that his head was no better, that he thanked her for her thought of him, and that he would take the tea she offered if it was not too much trouble gladly with hurried breath and fingers that almost trembled marcia hastened to the kitchen once more and prepared a dainty tray not even glancing at the dinner-table all so fine and ready for its guest and back again she went to his door an eager light in her eyes as if she had obtained audience to a king he opened the door this time and took the tray from her with a smile it was a smile of ashen hue and fell like a pall upon Marcia's soul. It was as if she had been permitted for a moment to gaze upon a martyred soul upon the rack. Marcia fled from it and went to her own room, where she flung herself on her knees beside her bed and buried her face in the pillows. There she knelt, unmindful of the dinner waiting downstairs, unmindful of the bright day that was droning on its hours. Whether she prayed she knew not, WHETHER SHE WAS WEEPING, SHE COULD NOT HAVE TOLD. HER HEART WAS CRYING OUT IN ONE GREAT LONGING TO HAVE THIS CLOUD OF SORROW THAT HAD SETTLED UPON DAVID LIFTED. SHE MIGHT HAVE KNELT THERE UNTIL NIGHT, HAD THERE NOT COME THE SOUND OF A KNOCK UPON THE FRONT DOOR. IT STARTLED HER TO HER FEET IN AN INSTANT, AND SHE HASTILY SMOOTHED HER rumpled HAIR, DASHED SOME WATER ON HER EYES, AND RAN DOWN. It was the clerk from the office, with a letter for her. The post-chaise had brought it that afternoon, and he had thought perhaps she would like to have it at once, as it was postmarked from her home. Would she tell Mr. Spafford when he returned? He seemed to take it for granted that David was out of town for the day, that everything had been going on all right at the office during his absence, and the paper was ready to send to press.' He took his departure with a series of bows and smiles, and Marcia flew up to her room to read her letter. It was in the round, unformed hand of Mary Ann. Marcia tore it open eagerly. Never had Mary Ann's handwriting looked so pleasant as at that moment. A letter in those days was a rarity at all times, and this one to Marcia in her distress of mind seemed little short of a miracle. It began in Marianne's abrupt way, and opened up to her the world of home, since she had left it. But a few short days had passed, scarcely yet numbering into weeks, since she left, yet it seemed half a lifetime to the girl promoted so suddenly into womanhood, without the accompanying joy of love and close companionship that usually makes desolation impossible. "'Dear Marsh,' the letter ran, I expect you think queer of me to write you so soon. I ain't much on writing, you know, but something happened right after you leaving and has kept right on happening that made me feel I kinder like to tell you. Don't you mind the mistakes I make? I'm thankful to goodness you ain't the schoolteacher, or I'd never write s longs I'm living. But anyhow, I'm going to tell you all about it. The night you went away, I was standing down by the gate under the old elm i had on my best things yet from the wedding and i hated to go in and have the day over and have to begin putting on my old calico to-morrow morning again and washing dishes just the same seemed as if i couldn't bear to have the world just the same now you was gone away well i heard some one coming down the street and who do you think it was why hanford weston he came right up to the gate and stopped I don't knows he ever spoke two words to me in my life, except that time he stopped the big boys from snowballing me and told me to run along quick and get in the schoolhouse while he fit em. Well, he stopped and spoke, and he looked so sad. Seemed like I knew just what he was feeling sad about, and I told him all about you getting married instead of your sister. He looked at me like he couldn't move for a while and his face was as white as that marble man in the cemetery over Squire Hancock's grave. He grabbed the gate real hard, and I thought he was going to fall. He couldn't even move his lips for a while. I felt just awful sorry for him. Something came in my throat like a big stone, and my eyes got all blurred with the moonlight. He looked real handsome. I just couldn't help thinking you ought to see him. By and by, he got his voice back again, and we talked a lot about you. He told me how he used to watch you when you was a little girl wearing pantalettes. You used to sit in the church pew across from his father's, and he could just see your big eyes over the top of the door. He says he always thought to himself he would marry you when he grew up. Then when you began to go to school and was so bright, he tried hard to study and keep up, "'just to have you think him good enough for you. "'He owned up he was a bad speller, "'and he'd tried his level best to do better, "'but it didn't seem to come natural. "'And he thought maybe if he was a good farmer "'you wouldn't mind about the spelling. "'He hired out to his father for the summer, "'and he was trying with all his might "'to get to be the kind of man twould suit you. "'And then when he was ploughing "'and planning all what kind of a house "'with big columns to the front he would build, Here comes the coach driving by, and you in it. He said he thought the sky and fields was all mixed up, and his heart was going out of him. He couldn't work any more, and he started out after supper to see what it all meant. That wasn't just the exact way he told it, Marsh. It was more like poetry, that kind in our reader about Lord Ullin's daughter, you know. We used to recite it on examination exhibitions. "'I didn't know Hanford could talk like that. "'His words were real pretty, kind of sorrowful, you know. "'And it all came over me that you ought to know about it. "'You're married, of course, and can't help it now, "'but taint every girl that has a boy care for her like that "'from the time she's a baby with a red hood on, "'and you ought to know about it, "'for it wasn't Hanford's fault that he didn't have time to tell you. "'He's just been living for you for a number of years,' "'and it's kind of hard on him. "'Course you may not care, being you're married and have a fine house "'and lots of clothes of your own and a good time, "'but it does seem hard for him. "'It seems as if somebody ought to comfort him. "'I'd like to try, if you don't mind. "'He does seem to like to talk about you to me, "'and I feel so sorry for him, I guess I could comfort him a little.' for it seems as if it would be the nicest thing in the world to have someone like you that way for years, just as they do in books, only every time I think about being a comfort to him, I think he belongs to you, and it ain't right. So, Marsh, you just speak out, and say if you're willing I should try to comfort him a little, and make up to him for what he lost in you, being as you're married and fixed so nice yourself. Of course, I know I ain't pretty like you, nor can't hold my head proud and step high as you always did, even when you was little. But I can feel, and perhaps that's something. Anyhow, Hanford's been down three times to talk about you to me, and if you don't mind, I'm going to let him come some more. But if you mind the leastest little bit, I want you should say so, for things are mixed in this world, and I don't want to get to trampling on any other person's feelings, much less you who have always been my best friend and always will be as long as I live, I guess. Remember how we used to play house on the old flat stone in the orchard and you gave me all the prettiest pieces of china with sprigs on them? I ain't forgot that and never will. I shall always say you made the prettiest bride I ever saw, no matter how many more I see, and I hope you won't forget me. It's lonesome here without you, "'If it wasn't for comforting Hanford, "'I shouldn't care much for anything. "'I can't think of you a grown-up woman. "'Do you feel any different? "'I suppose you wouldn't climb a fence "'nor run through the pasture lot for anything now. "'Have you got a lot of new friends? "'I wish I could see you. "'And now, Marsh, I want you to write right off "'and tell me what to do about comforting Hanford. "'And if you've any message to send to him, I think it would be real nice. I hope you've got a good husband and are happy. From your devoted and loving schoolmate, Marianne Fothergill. Marcia laid down the letter and buried her face in her hands. To her, too, had come a thrust which must search her life and change it. So while David wrestled with his sorrow, Marcia entered upon the knowledge of her own heart there was something in this revelation by mary ann of hanford weston's feelings toward her that touched her immeasurably had it all happened before she left home had hanford come to her and told her of his love she would have turned from him in dismay almost disgust and have told him that they were both but children how could they talk of love she could never have loved him she would have felt it instantly and her mocking laugh might have done a good deal toward saving him from sorrow. But now, with miles between them, with the wall of the solemn marriage vows to separate them forever, with her own youth locked up as she supposed until the day of eternity should perhaps set it free, with no hope of any bright dream of life such as girls have, could she turn from even a schoolboy's love without a passing tenderness, "'such as she would never have felt "'if she had not come away from it all? "'Told in Marianne's blunt way, "'with her crude attempts at pathos, "'it reached her as it could not otherwise. "'With her own new view of life, "'she could sympathize better "'with another's disappointments. "'Perhaps her own loneliness "'gave her pity for another. "'Whatever it was, Marcia's heart suddenly turned "'toward Hanford Weston "'with a great throb of gratitude.' She felt that she had been loved, even though it had been impossible for that love to be returned, and that whatever happened she would not go unloved down to the end of her days. Suddenly, out of the midst of the perplexity of her thoughts, there formed a distinct knowledge of what was lacking in her life, a lack she had never felt before, and probably would not have felt now, had she not thus suddenly stepped into a place much beyond her years. It seemed to the girl, as she sat in the great chin's chair, and read and re-read that letter, as if she lived years that afternoon, and all her life was to be changed henceforth. It was not that she was sorry that she could not go back and live out her girlhood and have it crowned with Hanford Weston's love. Not at all. She knew, as well now as she ever had known, that he could never be anything to her, but she knew also, or thought she knew, that he could have given her something, in his clumsy way, that now she could never have from any man, seeing she was David's, and David could not love her that way, of course. Having come to this conclusion, she arose and wrote a letter giving and bequeathing to Marianne Fothergill all right, title, and claim to the affections of Hanford Weston, past, present, and future sending him a message calculated to smooth his ruffled feelings with her pretty thanks for his youthful adoration, comfort his sorrow with the thought that it must have been a hallucination that some day he would find his true ideal, which he had only thought he had found in her, and send him on his way rejoicing with her blessings and good wishes for a happy life. As for Marianne, for once she received her mead of Marcia's love, For homesick Marcia felt more tenderness for her than she had ever been able to feel before, and Marcia's loving messages set Marianne in a flutter of delight, as she laid her plans for comforting Hanford Weston Chapter thirteen